0: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. When William Beveridge wrote his famous report in 1942, he outlined five giant evils of society that needed addressing. 76 years later, the welfare state is still focused on those five giants, but perhaps it's time to add a sixth, neglect. The idea of concentrating more on care in society is gaining traction, and is increasingly talked about as being a major facet of healthcare in an ageing society. I'm Richard Angel, Director of Progress, and I'm with Progress Chair Alison McGovern. We're joined by Alex Smith, Founder and Chief Executive of Cares Family, a community network organisation to combat loneliness, and Mary Wimbury, Chief Executive of Care Forum Wales, which seeks to improve social care. So we should probably start with what both of your organisations do for our listeners. They know what kind of issues you're dealing on a daily basis. So Alex, tell us a bit about your organisation.
1: So the Cares family is a group of community networks working in North London through North London Cares, South London through South London Cares, Manchester through Manchester Cares. We've never been particularly imaginative with our names. Um, we <laughs> connect the two loneliest age groups in the UK, so older people over the age of 75. And it surprises a lot of people that young people, and particularly between the age of 20, 21, and upwards to about 31, are the second loneliest age group in the UK. So we connect them through social clubs, group activities like dance parties and also one-to-one
0: relationships as well. Wow, interesting. Mary, tell us a bit about what care for in Wales does.
2: So we work with social care providers, care homes and domiciliary care providers to try and share good practice and also to influence policy within Wales with commissioners, regulators etc to, to improve social care.
0: So this has been a big issue coming up. We're on the recently celebrated the kind of 75th anniversary of Beveridge and did many great things. But uh, Rachel Rees wrote a really important piece about loneliness being the missing evil that didn't get dealt with. And Progress did a special edition saying that that neglect feeling of care at both ends of the spectrum was the bit that was missing. How is neglect and loneliness affecting modern society? And why is it getting worse? Well, so I would say that
1: somehow through our kind of political economy or through our culture we have chosen to prioritize what's efficient over what's important. So I commute to work and I tap my Oyster card on the bus without speaking to the bus driver or saying hello. I go and buy coffee from a machine without speaking to anyone or or saying hello to anyone. I stand on the tube, I live in London, so I, I stand on the tube and nobody looks at each other, never mind talks to each other. And then we go to these big tall glass buildings and we sit around and we are on our phones all day and we're on computers all day. And we kind of withdraw from the interactions that really makes us human. So in that context, I think that the evidence definitely suggests that people are getting lonelier and that loneliness is incredibly bad for our health. It's bad for individuals' health, it's bad for community health and it's also bad for the National Health Service and social care more broadly. A lot of people don't know that while obesity may make you up to about 20% more likely to die prematurely and dependence on alcohol may make you up to about 30% more likely to die prematurely, loneliness may make you about 45% more likely to die. Wow. prematurely so it's it's quite right. a shocking and heartbreaking problem and it kind of gets to the kind of systemic center of what i think we need to do in this country
3: and is that because of the impact on loneliness of mental health is that the channel for that statistic or how does that like yeah. i think it's pretty obvious why overeating or <laughs> um over of alcohol might be life limiting but like how does loneliness have such an impact
1: well so what marks us out from other species is the fact that we are empathic or empathetic towards other people that we make the the types of bonds that other animals maybe don't and it's been shown through clinical trials and others that loneliness leads to strokes it brings on heart attacks it brings on depression it brings on dementia So I always think that loneliness is a gateway to all sorts of medical issues, but also it's a gateway to all sorts of other social problems as well, whether that's crime or joblessness or, you know, your lack of connection to the economy. If you've got a strong connection of people and community around you, you're much more likely to succeed. You're much more likely to have people to rely on in times of need. So it's it's a real fundamental kind of gateway issue.
2: And we know with older people, for example, if people start to lose mobility or actually in the early stages of dementia or something like that, actually they can withdraw from society because they're nervous and they don't want people to see how much they've deteriorated. And then you almost get a cumulative effect effectively on both their mental and physical health.
3: Because that lack of mobility and that lack of confidence basically compounds itself. Absolutely. So people become de-skilled and even less able to look after themselves.
0: We've got a piece in the next magazine that will be coming out at the beginning of July by a former labour advisor called uh, Paul Corrigan. And he says in it that if you're over 75 and you spend a week in a hospital bed, you lose 50% of your muscles. Like, And so therefore the recovery time is huge. And then that must be reinforcing of all of these points that you were... It's just amazing, isn't made, it? To think amazing. about that,
3: the physical impact on, on a week in hospital of somebody... That age. And so this was one of
0: the issues that Joe Cox had strongly identified as a big problem. She set up a commission about it, which I think that was what Rachel Reeves was kind of taking on for her. That's where right. Where you had taken on other of Joe so, Cox's work.
3: So loneliness and the Lonely Commission was one of the central planks of the legacy that Joe's friends wanted to take on. And Rachel, uh, along with Seema um, Kennedy, who's a Conservative Member of Parliament in Yorkshire, they finished the loneliness commission, and as a part as a part of that, the government have now created a minister for loneliness, Tracy Crouch, with the hope that she can take forward some of these ideas. And that's why I think the organisations that uh, Mary and Alex work for have a lot to tell the government right at the moment about what we need to do to combat loneliness. Do you know what I'd
1: say though? Is that it's it's uh, it, that's actually a really wonderful initiative that the government have um, have got started. But government can't fix this this issue for us, right? Government, the Treasury can't help you and I to make new friends or it can't help people in community to share the sorts of experiences that truly bind one another so what the government's doing is important but it's not sufficient you know Mm -hmm. people in their own communities can say hello to the the lady as they walk past or they can speak to other people at bus stops or they can wave to their hairdresser across the street i think the key thing that people individuals need to do to combat their own loneliness is to make sure that they feel that they've got a sense of belonging in their own community because if you've got a sense of belonging and a sense of identity then i think you're much less likely to feel disconnected but if you don't have that where do you start I think by being open, I think that's the most fundamental thing. I mean, you know... Uh, many people who know me know that I will, uh, speak very happily to people behind the counter as I'm buying a coffee and that Mm. I will speak to strangers at bus stops. And in fact, the reason and the way that I first founded North London care seven years ago was because I was a council candidate where I grew up in North London and met an older man who hadn't been out of his house for three months doing the rounds, knocking on people's doors, trying to get people to come out and vote on election day. And we developed a friendship through that because I wheeled him down the road to the voting place. And the next day I wheeled him down the road so that he could go and get a haircut And we developed a friendship that way. So I think being open and being vulnerable is actually kind of key. That's the best way that you can build relationships and friendships with people.
0: And is this something that they're dealing with in Wales? Has there been
1: similar yeah.
2: initiatives? Yeah, um, because obviously it's devolved. So the Welsh government has also got a loneliness strategy in terms of um, in terms of dealing with with loneliness. The other thing I just wanted to pick up on was what you were saying about people in hospital losing muscle ability and that kind of thing. And there's a brilliant book um, by an American doctor called Atta Gawandi, which I would really recommend to anyone who's interested in kind of finding out any more about this. Because what he talks about is sort of what makes life worth living effectively. But also, he very much focuses on- on, you know, how medicine has become kind of quite compartmentalised. So someone might be in hospital because they've, you know, damaged a particular part of their body, and they see the doctor that deals with that part of the body. But what we don't do is look at the person as a whole and think, well, actually, maybe they've broken their arm. But actually, is the most important thing getting their arm working absolutely as brilliant as it was before? Or is it about how they work around that to still be able to get themselves dressed and have a level of independence, for example? And he talks about, you know, making geriatricians a speciality in medicine or how we ensure there's um, geriatric training right across the medical field so that people look at the whole person rather than just the bit that they're the doctor for?
3: I think that's really important, Mary. I'm very interested in care as a a policy area in part because I feel like the fact of having an ageing population has, we just haven't taken account of it in politics. We're still talking about Funding the National Health Service uh, as if you know what we were de- dealing with was the kind of burden of disease of twenty or thirty years ago, and I've been lucky enough to do days at work in nursing homes, and I'm doing a day at work with the domiciliary care company on uh, on Friday. The thing that I've learned more than anything else is it's about it's really hard to get your head around how to communicate with older people, especially people who are vulnerable and who are really. Um, you know who you're worried actually aren't able to tell you what it is they need so for example at one nursing home i was asked to help this older lady drink a cup of tea and i think i was just completely terrified because i i wasn't sure that she would tell me if it was too hot and so I'm, the other care staff were just amazing in the way that they were they knew the older people they were looking after so well that they could communicate with them in ways that wasn't just about talking and that's i really learned like the the biggest challenge that we have i think sometimes is being able to communicate with each other and knowing how to include Older people, especially those with a
2: level of vulnerability in society. It's really hard. So you
0: must see that in your work every day, Mary.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking as you were saying that of an example someone was telling me about in a care home where there was an older gentleman and he just didn't really communicate and he was, you know, he was he was quite withdrawn. And when he did say anything, it was short and not very friendly and whatever. And then they had a new member of staff who went in and suddenly he really opened up. And th- and they said to her, You know, what did you do? And she said, Oh, well, I didn't do anything, but it was to so and so and it turned out he'd been her head teacher when she was at primary school and she'd just shown him that level of respect that wow. you show your head teacher at primary school and suddenly it opened him up and it wasn't that the other staff had been doing anything particularly they just didn't know yeah they just wow. didn't know so it's about knowing the person and yeah. you know and, that's,
3: and that that whole person thing yeah. you've got to look at the whole person but right. also like,
0: conveying respect because that, that must be the time you're most vulnerable when you've got you're not in your own home suddenly you're not you haven't got all your own possessions around yeah. you and suddenly you are having to give up potential a level of autonomy
1: I I think there's two really important things involved with this. One is positivity and the other is prevention. You can't create a loneliness club for lonely people that people are going to come to, right? I mean, that's part of the problem in the sector. There are the tools that measure loneliness that are the best respected tools that measure loneliness Ask people, when was the last time you felt worthless? How worthless do you feel today? Yeah. How lonely do you feel today? And if you didn't feel lonely and worthless yeah. at the beginning of that conversation, you certainly do by the end. So <laughs> with our work, the CARES family, we're constantly positive. There are younger people and older people demonstrating the stories that they're sharing and the relationships that they've got. It's
3: like the test for postnatal depression. It's like, how bad do you feel today? It's like, I haven't slept in 16 hours. How, how good is it possible to feel? <laughs>
1: exactly. And, and the other thing being prevention... The National Health Service, as wonderful as I'm sure we all agree that it is, is in many ways a national ill health service. Mm, it yeah. fixes people when we're sick, and you know, thank God that it does. But what it needs to become, in my opinion, if it's going to be sustainable and survive with this aging population that we've got, is genuinely a national health service, something that keeps people well in the first place. And in that sense, it has to probably reinvest a whole load of its budget from physical health care and into mental health care, and frankly, some of it from clinical procedures and into much more relational and community procedures. And is
0: any of the work you do with people while they're in hospital? Because that must be, you know, just talked about, it was a setback for people sometimes to have gone into hospital and therefore the the issues that you must be dealing with in the community must be compound when they're in hospital.
1: Yeah, we, I mean, we find that all the time and it's really saddening. Um, we don't work specifically in hospitals, but we work with a lot of people who are in and out of hospitals the yeah. whole time. And we see all the time that the system, which is there ostensibly to support people in many ways, will let people down or, or you know, people will be discharged on a Friday night at 9pm where they've got nobody to go to in the community and therefore the issue is perpetuated further and further down the line. So,
0: and I imagine the minute you're out of hospital might be your most lowliest because if you're in hospital there's a reason to visit isn't there there's like that's a kind of focal point and then we say that leaving hospital is then your kind of wellness point that you're like okay to go out and then you know as a family member that lives far away I, was like, I don't need to go and visit this Saturday do I and, clearly. and
1: this is another way that loneliness is an issue that is putting so much pressure on the nhs one in 10 gp appointments is taken by an older person with no other condition than that they're lonely they go to have a conversation with people we meet people all the time who stay in hospital longer than they need to because they know that they're going home to sit between four
0: walls and there's nobody there for them to speak to okay i'm going to bring this bit of the discussion to a close for now but we're we'll back after this short break So we're back with Alison McGovern, Alex Smith and Mary Wimbury, talking about some of the issues of dealing with neglect and loneliness in society and what we can do with those going forward. I wanted to pick up slightly from where we were just before about intergenerational relationships and how important they are. What is the role for the state, for the government in trying to bring those about and ensure that people are talking through generations so we've got a problem frankly um when it comes to how our generations are interacting
1: it's not an insoluble problem but if you read the headlines and you believe the headlines in the media our generations are at war baby boomers versus millennials and you know some of that was seen in the general election in 2015 again in 2017 and certainly through brexit i think that the best thing that people can do is spend time with people who are not like them and people from different backgrounds and life experiences and i don't like the expression that age is just a number because i think it's really important that that's the era in which you're born and grew up is a time that can define you mm-hmm. somebody who was raised during the war is likely to be very different from somebody who was raised in the 60s and it's likely to be very different all over again from somebody who was raised with ubiqu- ubiquitous technology And yet I don't buy the argument that just because of the time that you were born, you know, you're you're fundamentally different. We all share similar life experiences, love, loss, hope, heartbreak, mischief, misadventure. And so I really think it just takes that same thing I was saying before, being vulnerable for a moment and going and spending time with people who are not like you, whether it be through a community organisation or volunteering in the local community or just with your neighbours.
3: Actually, the thing that I've always found is that I've always had friends of different uh, ages and ethnicity from me because I'm in the Labour Party. Um, It's
0: amazing how Labour does that.
3: It It does do that. So so one of my best friends at home in the Wirral um, is a woman called Janet. She's absolutely amazing. Nobody knows how old she is uh, because she's so like, she's very fashionable as Janet, but like, and you
0: obviously wouldn't ask.
3: And I obviously wouldn't ask, but like she's in her seventies, but like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we go out for lunch all the time because when it comes to going out for lunch, we've got loads in common. Yeah. The fact is, though, she knows loads of things that I don't know. And I know some things that she doesn't know. And so we share them. And it's because we've been up for that, that we've got this friendship. But because we were, as Alex said, open to it. Mary, what I- do you think that can be done?
2: yeah i was just gonna say we have an older people's commissioner in wales as well and one of the things the outgoing um commissioner has just done a lot of work on is you've got to recognize not just what older people kind of need but also what they can bring to society as well and it's definitely. absolutely what alison was just saying
3: definitely um
2: and i think go- going back to, to what alex was saying about how you know how can the how can the state help we have a lot of people out there in the domiciliary care workforce at the moment who are on um you know bits of contracts to do work in the morning work at lunchtimes, work in the evening, because that's when the work is, if we could actually fill those gaps by getting them to be community navigators, and this is something we're talking about piloting at the moment, then firstly it makes that gives them more job satisfaction makes them more likely to stay in work which is a problem for that workforce at the moment but also they can actually bring the knowledge and exchange information between people who are living at home but are quite often living quite a lonely existence and bring them into touch with organizations like yours or other organizations in the local community there's a massive
3: culture i think of seeing uh care work as basically you know personal care like helping somebody have a shower or helping somebody prepare a meal but I think at its best it's enabling I think at its best it's helping that person with things that they can still do for themselves with a little bit of help but also saying okay well that person really gets a lot of satisfaction out of maybe it's going to church or maybe it's you know maybe it's actually going to the cinema and that that's got to be a part of it as well and
2: I've got a brilliant story as well about a um, domiciliary care project and they were doing a pilot about sort of offering people just blocks of time with the agency that they could choose what they did with. And one woman said... I want someone to come and have a political discussion with me. Um, she said, there's all this going on in the world with Trump and Brexit and I don't have anyone I can talk to about it anymore. And apparently she only did it once because that was kind of enough, but she chose the care worker. She wanted to have spent half an hour having that, dis- or whatever it was having yeah. that discussion with. And now, isn't that a lovely story?
0: I thought that was a, a really lovely story.
1: I think there's a, a few other things that government can do specifically as well. Um, there's an all, part, all party parliamentary group on this uh, on social integration chaired by Chakramuna um and they invited me to write uh, an essay for their opening pamphlet and kind of uh, it was an invitation or a, a, you know a kind of um, provocation to come up with a load of ideas for how younger and older people could interact outside of those organisations Government already or local authorities already have quotas for the number of um, people in uh, income deprivation to go into social housing in many instances. I think that local authorities can do more to have quotas to have younger and older people sharing the same space I think the transport organisations can do more to encourage and invite people to take their headphones off and actually have a conversation on the bus or on the tram or on the train. Maybe a a book cubbyhole or something where people can share ideas or just have a conversation on the train. They can encourage that sort of thing. Um, And I think the fundamental thing... So you have
0: chatting trains. Everyone scowls at you if you end up in a quiet train. I was in a quiet train. I hadn't realised and obviously I dared to look at my phone and I got looked at by everybody. But the opposite could be...
1: Happy to chat, True. right? That was yeah. that's the, the the kind of motto of the Joe Cox Commission, um, and also then it. But this takes culture change. It takes culture change.
3: Um,
0: I'm not sure that's fair on could... everyone else.
3: Exactly. I was just thinking like. You'd be, you'd be terrible. You'd be like talking to everybody.
0: <laughs> I might do really good for the NHS. Yeah, this yeah. might be the way that I, I say show terrible. it. I, mean, I obviously
3: mean fabulous. Think <laughs> of the healthcare impetus
0: I could put into this country. Go on, carry on. Well, I, I was, was
1: just going to say that I think ultimately we, we we need to lose some of the British stiff upper lip that we've got in this country because this is the loneliness capital of Europe and the world right now. And we need to learn to value older and younger people a bit more instead of stereotyping them. And I think mm. you know, in, in schools, for example, why can't the welfare system um, and pensions payments allow people to use the value that they have to be brought into local schools so that young people have role models who are above the age of 70 75 and older people have that connection with younger people at the same time i think there's all sorts of ways that we can get people through our system and our politics to spend time together
3: i think i think that's right and i think that there's a lot of um younger people who don't necessarily have a grandparent um where there can be a kind i mean i sort of jokingly mentioned the Labour party but but I think there's all sorts of ways in which community organisations used to provide kind of surrogate older relatives who would give you the benefit of knowledge and advice. And similarly, the other way around, was it Tony Benn who said that the purpose of the old is to encourage the young? I think there's a lot of older people who would actually get quite a lot out of seeing younger people flourish
2: with their support. You know, now, I think is that's...
0: technology an opportunity for all this, or is it just compounding the problems as we look at our phones and put on our headphones?
2: Well, I was going to say, possibly by the time we're this age, we'll just still have bigger screens with bigger fonts. And (laughs) um, that's the way we'll we'll solve this but no i think there are real opportunities for using technology better and if we look at you know how we engage with a lot of things in terms of you know just buying things very quickly on a phone or doing all sorts of transactions actually oh i want to find someone you know where's my nearest cares or you know what other org- organization can provide me with something to do is there an organization that can provide a volunteer to take me to the garden center once a month or whatever and again there's been sort of quite a bit of experimentation in Wales around this following the Social Services and Wellbeing Act and it's looking at actually what people need rather than assuming you've got set statutory services and people want to go to a day centre well actually it might be for example someone used to get taken to the garden centre by a friend but the friend can no longer do it actually that's what they want to do, go to the garden centre, have a little wander around and have a cup of tea but they can't get there and manage their way around it without someone taking them and there are people out there who are happy and
3: willing to volunteer to do that and presume as well in parts of wales along with um, other rural areas in scotland and england and northern ireland there is that issue of you know mountains and stuff like, (laughs) like alex talked about cities and how cities can be incredibly lonely places which of course they can but rural isolation must feature heavily as well quite a lot in your work you know just thinking about i know north wales pretty well and actually it can it could be a challenge just getting to a decent sized supermarket
2: Indeed. And a lot of people from the northwest of England in particular retire to North Wales because they've gone there they on do. day trips and whatever. And actually they retire as a couple. Um, then one of them passes away and then they're very lonely. Perhaps things aren't as accessible as they thought they were. And there's also a very good local community, but they're not really quite part they're of that. Really and it's how it. you make those links. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I think that's right.
3: I think we've thought a lot about... Um, seaside towns commercially like in terms of the fact that they used to have a particular offer in Britain that hasn't really been a successful financial model for a long time but I don't think we really think about the fact that a lot of older people retire there and then slowly get quite lonely in seaside places so is there a kind
0: of task rabbit for volunteering with older people is there a kind of app that you can go where an older person can say I want to take them to the garden centre and somebody's like oh i'm going anyway why don't you come with me oh. part of the problem i
1: think is that that's very very difficult to do in a way that uses that sense of identity and belonging and, and, and locality right. and scale at the same time so yeah. I, there's not one that i know about i know of lots of organizations that have tried to develop them but i haven't seen one that's been developed really successfully yet the key question in my mind is actually that it's it's really similar to political organizing um that technology um is most useful when you use it to organize online, but mobilize offline. So, you know, clearly um, social media and digital technology are part of the problem when it comes to loneliness. They also have to be part of the solution. Um, Through the Cares family, we mobilize our young professionals through... Uh, telling stories online, good search engine optimization, you know, a, a website that enables people to get involved very easily. We're using technology to mobilise people offline, but unless you have conversations with people face to face and you can kind of, you know, have those those human um, interactions that are so important, then you're gonna you're actually perpetuating the problem.
0: And when you're recruiting people for the work that you do, are you recruiting them as lonely people? Is it them self identifying that they're lonely, or is it you're trying to, you're basically offering them the opportunity to take away somebody else's loneliness and in and the nature of people who come forward yeah, to do the, that are
1: definitely not a service provision we have right. a very particular language that's a communitarian language about Nate we use the word neighbors the older mm-hmm. and the younger people are neighbors and that's because you can't be a neighbor on your own without a relationship with somebody else yeah um so we have a very particular language and and you know as i said before we don't actually use the word loneliness very much apart from in funding proposals to yeah. organization a b and c that that know that this is a problem um you can talk about loneliness as the problem but the solution has to be connection and it has to be people spending time
0: so i want to just think about how this is affecting us uh throughout the economy and how some of this can be part of the solution so uh i mean alex how do you measure the success of your work and how you get those funders to continue to value what you're doing and to fund projects not just where you are but in other places?
1: (laughs) It's been a real problem for us in the last few years. We've had two significant evaluations that have shown us that our work reduces loneliness, helps people to feel that they've got more people around them, helps them to feel happier. And that's through tools that either have been developed by academic institutions or that we've developed ourselves. Um, But there's a bit of a problem on this because... um, Uh, You know, the, the academic organizations that have these validated measures are actually inappropriate for what they're measuring. Um so we're just about to undergo a new evaluation where we're gonna instead of creating a randomized control group, which is a very clinical thing that people don't really respond very well to, we're just gonna talk to the people we know and we're gonna ask them, yes, it may be um subjective, but loneliness is subjective. We're gonna ask them, how do you feel as a result of coming to these activities? Do you feel better or worse? Do you feel you know X or Y? And then we're gonna have um a polling group in another part of the country and we'll have comparisons by that. But it's part of the problem, and I think one of the things that we wanna do in the next few years is shift the dial and change the debate on what makes good evaluation. Because I think in the voluntary sector more broadly over the last few years, we've kind of reduced the argument down to bean counting and social return on investment, and you don't actually capture the value of what it is that you're trying to do by that type of measure. Mary,
0: you're nodding vigorously there about, uh, about that work. How have you seen uh, your work impact the economy and what can be done to uh, recognise that?
2: I mean, I think part of it is just that, you know, connection it's quite difficult you're saying you know you can show that people are less lonely there's other research that shows if people are less lonely they're going to be less of a drain on the health service but it's kind of how those are connected and how those are judged we've just recently published a report with partners across the uk about the economic value of social care and this is sort of paid for social care um but what that highlights is you know the more you pay your workers the more money goes back into the local economy because they're out there spending it um also you you have local supply chains where you're buying goods and services locally that can provide value as well and then the other thing that i think we forget about social care in the same way as childcare, it can enable people to work as well so you're adding to the economy in that way i do know i think from the point
3: of view of the economics of some of this uh, i would question whether this is all a bit i'm I'm just going to be slightly controversial for the sake i think some of this is a bit of a bit pointless i think that if we have to provide a justification for having a good community where people feel friendly and neighborly towards each other i think we're asking ourselves a question too far like i sort of we're
0: doing that is that about why when there are opportunity costs and spending feels very restricted why is it right to do it this way because one of the things i think that report that you were talking about spoke to was in scotland all of their commissioning they don't just have to pay the living wage, as in George Osborne's fake one, they have to pay the Scottish living wage. And that means they're having a disproportionate impact on their community. And of course, I I imagine they're having better retention rates uh, and therefore quality of care is going up as well, as well as their contribution to the wider economy and the ability to keep women in the workforce, for example, uh, and other people across the board.
2: Absolutely right. And then the other thing that that's doing is not just keeping people in the workforce, but the more job satisfaction you can give, them. So it's, as Alison was saying earlier, it's not just about kind of time and task. You have to help someone make a meal or you have to help them get dressed. It's actually about having that social interaction. The more you're do, able enabled to do what people want you to do, the more likely you are to have job satisfaction, the more likely you are to stay.
3: I think that works for me, that you need a workforce development idea for domiciliary care, recognising that a lot of vulnerable older people, they're going to be their primary interaction with the health and social care system, and if you can get that interaction right, you've probably saved yourself somebody getting into a crisis. So it's really worth heavily investing in. I guess the point that I was just trying to make was that not everything ought to be the subject of an economic investigation.
0: Like, but come on, when you're chancellor in the future, when you are the <laughs>
3: the, the <laughs> labor <laughs> chancellor, and
0: Alex is knocking at your door, and Mary's got on the six o three train from a uh, Virgin train down from the uh, from North Wales. Th- that that will be there and one of the things that well, you look, have said look, to be fair on this issue yeah. is that the government need to move away from seeing as just recurring spending to investment spending because the the ability to enable other people to work in the economy yeah. to cut down costs yeah. further down i mean it seems to uh, me if 10 percent of a care worker's time was spent helping the older person socialize and be part of the groups that they were already part of but are finding them more difficult to be part of, how do you get to the golf club because it yeah. might not be that you play around a golf but you know, that yeah. was that was the thing that cheered up going my bandas. Go and have a cup of tea. He was just meeting yeah. at the end. He couldn't yeah. do the golf anymore. Yeah. But that meant he didn't have a drink after. So we just had to sort out somebody to go and take him for the bit yeah. of the drink. He could do that. that. He could yeah. definitely move his <laughs> his hand from the table to, to his chin. <laughs> and, and missing but but suddenly by not paying golf, not only was he missing out on the golf, he was missing out on the Ten people. It was catching up with,
2: and the reason we jointly commissioned the the report is because social care is just seen as a drain when people are looking at it as part of budgets, etc. And I think it's important that we recognise that it does contribute as well. But I totally take your point that you know we all need to be part of a good society as well.
0: And we're starting to run out of time, so I just want to cover a couple of things really quickly. How is austerity compounding this problem, Uh, and is there a way through? What do you think, Alex? <sighs> God,
1: that's such a, such a big question, Richard, that <laughs> it's very difficult to answer. Look um I think Loneliness is a deprivation of sorts, right? And I don't think that we should um, judge deprivation purely on financial income. I think we should judge it based on the number of social connections we've got. But clearly, one of the factors involved in this is that if you live in uh, social housing or housing association housing, you're more likely. That's one of the indicators of being lonely. If you are over the age of eighty-five, that's one of the indicators of being more more lonely. So that you know, there there are. Issues at stake here where, because of cuts in public services, whether that be the real uh, terms cuts in the National Health Service or across social care people are feeling like there are fewer people that they can reach out to. Systems have got more complex or more remote from people. So more services have gone online or more services have gone behind, you know, the telephonic abyss of press one to listen to green sleeves or press two to speak to somebody in a different country. And, And so I think that there are big systemic challenges that are making this more difficult. But ultimately, as I said before, government can't solve this problem and i don't think government were the cause of this problem either i think this is something in our culture maybe something in a kind of individualist capitalist society that means that we have as i said before prioritized what's efficient over what's important and i think ultimately whether it's a a blue government or a red government they can't really fix this. I think it's a, it's a broader cultural issue than that.
0: And how have you seen austerity affect your work, Mary?
2: I think austerity doesn't help because, you know, money always helps wheel the oils of, um, oil the wheels of change effectively. And, you know, things like, as you just mentioned, this in Scotland, they are um, requiring social care workers to be paid the living wage. That's not happening elsewhere. And, you know, I've had conversations with Labour councils about that and they've just said, well, oh, it's a very nice idea. We would very much like to do it, but... Well, partly, um, I
0: imagine for them, the benefits of doing it aren't felt by while they're better in their community the treasury gets the direct impact and won't be respecting that and giving it back to the local council or the commissioner of oh yeah there's absolutely
3: there's there's absolutely no mechanism um to get any benefit of it i mean it's one of the i mean that is a consequence of austerity actually that you simply cannot ask local authorities to take anything but fairly short-term decisions because the treasury is funding them on a year-by-year basis and do they do they see the returns on investment? Not really.
0: And Alex, how have you seen? So you started your uh, program in North London, yeah, um, and you've moved to South London and Manchester. What have been the differences in moving to different cities? And could you run it in rural North Wales? Um, so our
1: model is deliberately designed for big cities where change occurs very quickly: urban transience, gentrification, globalization, digitization, and housing bubbles are kind of most pronounced um, which means that communities are changing faster than ever before and that old spit and sawdust pub that used to be the place that you're talking about your relatives uh, a place of identity and belonging now is a fancy wine bar and it's the young professionals who are arriving who therefore are isolating the older people but the young professionals themselves don't have roots in their community so it's a very particular urban model um, ours we have seen uh, differences across the three locations that we work in and one of the biggest difficulties as I'm sure Andy Burnham would agree in Greater Manchester, is transport and the fact that um, buses go into and out of town but they seldom uh, go around the edge of town and so those neighbourhoods which could be incredibly well connected with different bus routes are actually incredibly
0: isolated from one another. That's interesting and and could it work in a or what would have to be different for it to work in a rural area? Um in my view, change not the same it, agent. Of this loneliness. is about
1: institutions at the end, um, and I think if the institutions of a local community, whether they're urban or rural, are strong, and so in more rural communities you might have uh, faith groups, you might have scouts organisations, you might have the sorts of things that in cities some of those organisations have been somewhat kind of um, uh, diminished over the last ten years. Even trade unions, for example, um, the places that people used to get their connection and identity in the big cities are are disintegrating somewhat. So. It, I don't know, Mary, I'd be really interested to hear your point of view on this, but my sense is that in many rural communities there is already a kind of binding fabric
2: I think there often is a binding fabric but there are often people who aren't part of it and it's because it's so organic sometimes it's quite difficult for people to kind of get into that effectively without any so they, they don't feel the need to sort of say oh well we need to recruit people to do this because actually they, they know there is already interaction between younger and older people but actually there are some people who are outside that and it's about how you can kind of manage a process because everybody knows that something happens in the local community centre on a Friday that they'd like to go to but actually everybody doesn't if they've only you know just moved there for whatever reason they've been commuting or they've retired there or whatever and it's about how you draw those people in I think
0: and it does seem that one of the hardest things it feels to admit is that it's very hard to make new friends as an adult so if you think um the you know as a child you're constantly put into situations where you're meeting new people and normally in quite big groups you join a play group a scout group a school a university or whatever but actually when you're older unless you work in big organizations all of the time and are moving between big organizations it does feel quite difficult to find uh, new friends as an adult and if you then have to move locations because of work and if more people are working alone or are uh alison's desperate to make a joke here about <laughs> my inability to make friends
3: uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> it was a joke about the labor party but, but it is one of the Join nice the things Labour the labor party has done
0: i went to go to live in australia i was picked up by a former chair of labor and immediately we had a like yeah, exactly, connection, and we were exactly. all buddies and we're still friends and i feel i speak to australians sometimes more than i speak to my fellow comrades in my neighboring clp and that but that's a really good and strong thing that the labor we're like but lots of places they don't have that
3: the, the thing that people often miss about the load party is it's, it's a bit like the rotary when I'm, I'm president of Bebington Rotary Club. I'll have, you know, and,
0: um, never know it out
3: when I go there, you know, the thing that they say is really good about it as an institution is that it's the same everywhere. So wherever you go in the world, there's normally a rotary. The meetings have the same structure. You know, they announce anybody who's visiting. If you're, you're entitled to go, you know, that's, it's best political institutions like the Labour Party or trade unions should be like that. They should be a way of bringing people together who have a thing in common wherever they're from. And, you know, the thing that's, and I suppose, you know, I don't, I'm an atheist, but I guess it's there's a kind of church element as well where faith um, groups, all different faiths um, are like that too, where it's a uniting thing that unites people around, not the fact that they were born in that town, but the fact that they're part of that institution wherever they're from. and. I think Alex is right to say that some of the answers to loneliness does have to be about institutions. And yes, we can create new organisations, but also to ask ourselves, how can we build up the institutions that we've got? How can we make them stronger, more inclusive? How can we find the people whose society is sort of left out and left behind and scoop them into the things that we've already got?
0: I feel like we could go on forever, but we do have to um, draw it to a close. So thank you, Mary, for joining uh uh, the debate this week and good luck with the work you're doing. And I know you're standing for the National Executive Committee as well. So good luck with that. Um, I think thank nominations you. close uh, this week. So if you haven't got yours in yet, uh, you should. And Alex, thank you for the work you're doing and coming on the podcast and sharing us the lessons and learning from what Thanks you've been doing. Thank you. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's review show. What's the question this week? So last week's parliamentary vote was an even bigger pro-European rebellion for Labour than the vote to take us into the common market over 35 years ago. Shortly after that, Labour adopted a pro-referendum policy, which was controversial even at the time, and Deputy Leader Roy Jenkins resigned. Two other shadow cabinet members also resigned. Who were they? Ooh, good question. So send your answers to office at progressonline.org.uk or tweet them to at progressonline.org on the Twitter. If you get it right, you could win a progress mug. So we're going to wrap it up now. We've been delighted to have Alex Smith and Mary Wimbury join us this week. Send your questions, comments through Twitter, email, and don't forget to leave an iTunes review. If you leave a review on iTunes, it means this podcast isn't just listened to by those who currently subscribe, but we can get to new listeners across the country. And that's a key part of our progressive politics. Thank you for listening.
3: You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast.